Hello and welcome to the Peace Love Plants podcast. I'm your host, Marco Knox. Every week I'm humbled by the amazing stories that my guests share with me and with all of you. This week is no exception. You're about to meet Richie Crowley, a thought-provoking, altruistic human that refuses to let normal define him. As you'll soon hear, Richie is the epitome of paying it forward and living a life that can't be reflected upon with regret. In this episode, we discuss losing a loved one to COVID-19, his life growing up in Canton, Massachusetts, playing professional hockey, and overcoming alcohol and drug abuse. And that's just the front half of our discussion. We then dive into his awe-inspiring bike ride across the United States of America, over 3,000 miles of pedaling, completely fueled by plants, with a purpose-filled mission fanning his motivation. That mission continues to serve others to this day. Richie is the type of person that once you've talked with him, you feel like you've been friends with him for life. I'm certain that you'll find this conversation entertaining and perhaps even motivating. So, let's get into the show appropriately titled, A Dream Not Deferred, with Richie Crowley. Richie Crowley, welcome to the Peace, Love, Plants podcast, my friend. How's life? You know, it's... It's good. Yeah. Life is, it's really good. When you measure it, all things included, the um, roof over the head, food in the cabinets in the pantry this morning, friendship, family, it's all things considered, it's good. Yeah. You know, that's saying a lot too in this precarious time we're all in. I mean, it's very uncertain out there. So that's, that's a positive outlook. I'm glad to hear you say that. Thank you. Yeah. It's, I know I texted you just a little yesterday and let you know that I may have to push this episode just due to some family things. One of them being directly related to COVID-19, where a grandparent of mine was tested positive over the weekend and had a fast deterioration of health. And yesterday afternoon ended up passing away from it. So there's that. I thought waking up this morning that it would weigh on me a bit more, Mm -hmm. but there's a level of bittersweetness to it, knowing that He's out of pain, knowing that it's part of life. You know, everyone will come to know or already knows death. And yeah. there's no way to avoid it. You know, life is this linear progression. So as I kind of sat this morning, it's like, okay, you know what? That's, this is hard. This will be hard. It's hard to see my mother like this. It's hard to see my sister, my aunts and uncles, my cousins, my grandmother. But we are like hundreds of thousands of other families around the world right now who are suffering loss due to this virus. But also there's the beauty of it that, hey, we're able to have a 20-person text chain last night sending back photos. We're able to call and have Zoom conferences and set up a Zoom funeral this weekend. Like We're able to do all of that, which are signals that life is still pretty good. Mm-hmm. You know, life is still pretty good. And I'm seeing those articles where you know some kids can't even enroll in their online learning platforms because they don't have Wi-Fi or their parents aren't home during the day because they have to work two jobs because the wage is so low or because they're a grocery worker or they're part of Instacart. So all things considered, doing pretty well. Yeah, that's raw right there, man. I really appreciate you sharing that with me. I know that that's that's an emotional subject and there's no words that I can say to help relieve that pain that you and your family are going through. Just my deepest condolences and I appreciate you sharing that with myself and the audience. Thank you. I know it's, thank you. Just being here on this call and having friendship is something where that's, like it's a type of love language and it's a relationship language where no one has to have the right words. It's just like, 
I got you. Like we're here for each other. And yeah. that right there is where I find a lot of comfort. No doubt. And I'm grateful that you said that because we spoke a couple of weeks ago and when we hung up, I, I sat the phone down and I just kind of sat there for a moment. And I reflected on the words we had said to one another. I thought, man, I feel like I've known this guy forever. It was just this instant connection. It was just easy to speak to you. It was easy to listen to your story. It resonates with me, your words and the work that you do. So I feel like we have been friends forever. And I'm sure that we'll speak more and more as life goes on. So you definitely have a new friend here, brother. (laughs) Likewise. (laughs) So let's dive into this show here, man. Let's let's crank this thing up because I'm really excited to talk to you. I feel that your story is very impactful. There's multi-layers to it. And I think that it's going to have a profound effect on all that hear this podcast and find your work through other mediums. And I kind of want to set the stage before we dive too deep into this. I was, I want to explain to the audience, I explained it to you when we talked a couple weeks ago, how I discovered you. So I was preparing for an interview with Robbie Ballinger, who, for those who don't, that are listening out there that don't know, Robbie's an ultra-endurance athlete. He's a plant-based ultra-endurance athlete that ran across the United States in 75 days. And as I was studying his accomplishment, I had this overwhelming sense of, you have to do something like this, man. Like, it just grips you, the story. So I was like, what can I do? I can't run. I can't ride for shit, as a matter of fact. So I said to myself, well, I love riding bikes. I'm going to ride my bike across the United States, and I'm going to do it plant-based, and I'm going to spread the message. So, boom, mission is set, right? And I'm thinking to myself, all right, well, I better start planning. So I start looking at routes, and I start riding a bike across the United States, and bam, here's this guy who just rode his bike across the United States, and moreover, he did it plant-based, and he's helping to feed the hungry, and it's called the wellness ride, and that guy is you. So... (laughs) Thanks for crushing my dreams, Richie. (laughs) Man, it's just, yo, you will, can still do it, will still do it, but you'll have your your iteration, your twist on it in your own experience. But that's such a cool discovery story. It was, it was. I couldn't believe it. And I just had this admiration for it. It's like, wow, this, the same feeling I had about when I was learning about Rogers. Like, man, this guy, here's a guy that's doing things for the right reasons. I mean, out there living life, not afraid to tackle dreams and riding his bike across the country. So, and I want to talk a lot about that ride and share with the listeners some of those experiences. But before we do that, let's back up. Let's start early years. You grew up in Canton, Massachusetts, right? That's right. Share with me and the audience what it was like growing up in the Northeast and maybe a couple of stories that helped shape your path. Yeah. So growing up in the Northeast, I think you're, you inherit this bit of pride or Bostonian bravado that just comes. And that has been amplified in in the past couple of decades, just with sport teams winning, that even though I'm not on any of those four teams, I and all of my friends somehow think we've become a world champion 13 times. Like we think we won that. So we walk around like with our chests out. And it's, it's a sports town. There's, I came from an Irish Italian immigrant family. And Boston is pretty much Irish. Italian, Italian usually to the north, some parts of the west, Irish all to the south. There's different ethnicities and cultures mixed in, but we were a, a typical Boston family. And even more typical, we cared about sports. I got into sports, was skating on ponds, skating on ice rinks since two, three years old, and found success with it. You know, found success with baseball when we're doing like the 12 years old Little League World Series and get to go back to my hometown, like my name's on like three plaques at baseball fields. And I'm like, that's pretty cool. And I'm like, oh God, I'm the 28-year-old who drives down to the Little League stadium just to see his name. And then hockey took off too. 
And that became something where I started giving up other sports to pursue that through middle school, through high school playing on varsity. And then when I got to be 16 years old, selected to go play for the U.S. under 18 national team for two years. And that at that point, I was 16, 16 and three months years old. And that was when I left Massachusetts and left Canton to go live with a random family in Michigan. And then I didn't get back to Canton for until nine years later. So you're in Michigan. What part of Michigan? Ann Arbor. Ann Arbor. Wow. Yeah. I used to say, because I had never been to a, I'd never lived in a town or a city that had everything. You know, from one side of Ann Arbor, there's Home Depot, Walmart, Meyer, Target, gas stations, car washes. Then there's movie theaters. Then there's the mall. Then there's the downtown restaurant district. Then there's the schools, the university, and another highway on the other side. Canton didn't have that. I was like, oh, okay, we have to go to Dedham to go to those restaurants. We have to go to Wall Photoshop <laughs> here. We have to go into Boston. So I, when I got to Ann Arbor, it was the first time that I thought, you never have to leave your town. How cool is this? And it was, you know, Midwest having to learn a bit more. Yeah, so I was out there for two years up until college. That's really cool. Yeah, I, I grew up in Michigan and, and it's ironic how you mentioned Dedham. I spent some time there too. I worked for a company back in the day called 47 Brand or Twins Enterprises. Yeah. And they, were, they were based in Boston or Dedham, Mass actually. So I spent many years in Dedham. Yeah, you know, you know exactly. Where <laughs> I can, you I can relate from? to what you're saying that the two, the contrast in the two areas is drastic. What part of Michigan were you from? So I was, I was actually born in Akron, Ohio, but then I was raised in Detroit. Okay. And then I went to high school in Marine City, Michigan, which is over on the St. Clair River between Port Huron and Detroit, really. So cool. we could see Canada across the river from our house. Okay, nice. Okay, so you know. Hockey's yeah. big in Michigan, just like it is in the Northeast. I mean, Red Wings. Yeah. Whew. Oh, I mean, I grew up and it was the Sergei Fedorov, Brendan Shanahan, mm-hmm. Darren McCartney, Iserman, Osgood, Stanley Cup winning, Colorado Avalanche, rivalry, mm-hmm. Detroit Red Wings. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, Iserman, legend, Bob Probert. Oh, yeah. oh my goodness. What a brawler, huh? His stories. Have you, have have you seen read that? his book? I haven't read his book, but I've got his story queued up on, uh, I think it's Amazon Prime, the documentary about him. Oh, I haven't seen that one. Okay, yeah. I'll have to compliment the book with that. Definitely. Yeah, Oof. we could talk about him all day. What a machine that guy was. Yeah. So ice hockey obviously is a big part of your life. So you're playing in Michigan. Where did you go from there? I know you played professionally, right? Even after that. Yeah. So at graduation of high school, I went to Brown University in Rhode Island and I played four years for Brown. And when I graduated Brown, I graduated with a degree in economics, a degree in political science, internships done every summer. And the direction that most of my classmates, peers, or family members would have guessed is, okay, hey, you're going to go down to New York, you know, you're going to go to DC or San Francisco. You know, you're either going to get into finance with your econ degree, you're going to go into politics in DC with PoliSci, or you're going to go to San Fran and just join the startup tech world. On August 6th of that year, about two months after graduating, I took a flight to France. And it was because of a decision I made that I wanted to pursue my childhood dream, which was I wanted to play professional ice hockey. And I got a taste of it after my senior season ended. I signed and went to Wheeling, West Virginia, which is part of the Pittsburgh Penguins organization. 
I kind of, I confronted myself a bit and said, how far away am I from the NHL? And at that point I was far away. I had injuries. I thought I could make it, but was I willing to put in all of the work to get there? No, I wasn't. And part of that probably came from fear of maybe being like, hey, maybe you can't do it. It's going to be embarrassing if you try and then don't. But the decision to go to Europe was an amazing decision for me. And I played three seasons over there. I played one in France. That year, we became French national champions, which was an incredible experience. That anniversary was just two days ago. So Facebook's blowing up with like the videos. And then the next year, I played in Bolzano, Italy, which was actually part of a six-country league. We were part of the Champions League that year. The year after that, I stayed in Italy and played in Cortina d'Ampezzo, which is just north of Venice. And that year, I also got to play for the Italian national team because I have have dual citizenship. So it was the three-year experience. And then every couple months, you get a week off in the season. You jump on a plane and go to Berlin, Prague, Hungary, Croatia, Edinburgh, Lisbon, Madrid, Barcelona. And that's just your weekend trip. You know, It's not just going down to New York from Boston on a weekend. It's taking a $20 EasyJet flight to Barcelona for four days. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's some world travel. So do you still have dreams of playing hockey? Do you still pick up, do you still lace up the skates and pick up the stick at all? Man, I have not put on ice skates in over two years. Really? The last time I put them on was 2018 in a fun pond hockey tournament in Vermont that I took <laughs> way too serious. And we lost to a team that I thought we shouldn't have lost to. And I like started breaking sticks over the boards. And people were like, dude, it's a Saturday on Lake Champlain. Like, you got to relax. And at that point, I was like, yeah, I just, I don't want to do this anymore. So (laughs) I'm not opposed to it. If I would play hockey, if someone drove my equipment down from Boston and then picked me up and brought me directly to an ice hockey rink that had a warm locker room. And I had all the tape for my gear. Anything I needed was in perfect condition and the ice was nice. And then the showers were warm after and they were going to drive me home and then take care of my equipment. I would go do it. But it's like so, it has to be perfect condition, ultimate convenience for me to do it. So you're not playing hockey. I'm not playing hockey. <laughs> <laughs> That's not happening. I mean, there's nothing not like happening. that happening. Oh, man. Well, you're still young enough. You never know. If you, if you, it sounds like uh, the last time you played, it made you a little angry. So maybe it's not, it's not meant to be played out anymore. But man, you could still probably lace them up and get out there and, and yeah, play with the I, best of them. The thing is, I feel if I were to return to the sport, I would be in the best shape better than any shape I ever played in because I just know how to train my body now. I know how to feed my body. I know how to nourish my body with sleep, recovery, proper foods, exercise, the mind. The mind is a huge part of it. So I've had those thoughts where I'm like, I just, I got, I want to test it out, but there's other things on the plate I'd rather do. Yeah, I hear you. Well, let's get into some of the things that you just mentioned, the mind, the nourishing yourself and how you got to that point in your life where you had that epiphany of going, wow, There's much more to this life than I originally maybe had thought. Now, I read one of your articles on Medium yesterday, and it was titled The Last Year I Drank Tequila. And that was a really good read, by the way. Um, (laughs) And it was eye-opening because you're just, 
I don't know how to say it, you're authentically yourself and it's just raw. I mean, you put it out there. You're not hiding from anything. You're not glorifying anything either. You're saying, this is what I did. This is how I did it. And this is why I don't do it anymore. Walk me through that a little bit of what it was like to come to that realization. So it starts, I think, growing up in the environment around high school seniors and then seniors in college and in this sport, in this masculine, probably a bit of an expired masculine narrative about what's popular and what's cool and what you should do. So with that came temptation of engaging in alcohol and drug use. And no matter what anyone says, you know, alcohol is 100% a gateway drug. I would have never drank tequila had I never drank beer. I would have never smoked a joint had I not smoked a cigarette. I would have never snorted cocaine if I didn't smoke that joint and drink that beer. It's like it all graduates. And I had a lot of fun doing it. Like I never truly scraped rock bottom. You know, I I would drive drunk, but I never got in that car crash. I would jump off the cliff into the water or do the stupid shit that I thought was wild. And I never had scars or scabs to prove to me that it was wrong. So I, it creates this like level of invincibility that I was like, oh, I'm going to keep doing it. And the response was popularity. The response was interest from women. The response was friends dapping you up and saying how cool it is. And I ate that shit up. You know, I thought it was amazing. And I started really confronting it when I was 25 and I went through a sudden breakup. And a week after that, I, you know, was doing drugs at nine in the morning, drinking. And that evening, I had a friend have to like hold me, console me, call people to come pick me up because what I was saying was indicating I was going to harm myself that night and not like a attention type harm or not something that would be able to be taken back type harm. Like I was being like, I want to jump out of a car. I want to jump off of a building. I didn't know I was capable of getting to that point of darkness. I don't know if I would have gone through with it, but it was to a scary point where people were like, this isn't good. Is that a result of the breakup kind of and all the... Yeah, I think I didn't know how to handle it. I didn't know how to handle it. And then I thought, you know, drug or alcohol was going to heal that, but that just spun me. It put me on this downward spiral that, accelerated quickly over the course of 12 hours. And in the aftermath of that, it was, whoa, all right, let's, what's going on? First off, you have a fragile self-esteem. You need to figure out a way to love yourself through your eyes, not the love of someone else. Because if someone breaks up with you, you can be hurt because there's a breakup there. But you cannot start thinking you suck and start thinking less of yourself and who you are. It's like you got to be able to remove yourself from any type of dependency and like create the same amount of love and compassion and empathy you have for others for yourself. That started with mostly meditation and investment in sleep and removal of technology in life. I was starting to like airplane mode my phone for 18 hours a day. Continue, fast forward you know, six to eight months, 12 months later, drugs are out of my life, but I'm still drinking and having fun. And 
I was still doing like some stupid shit, you know, still driving drunk, still trying to take over a bar and like get all the attention just so I could have someone express interest and still love me. And it was like, you know, that's, you're not there yet. You're, you're definitely so much further along than where you were, but you're still a work in progress. Couple that with, I got a little bit of confidence now that I'm a year into the workforce. I was like, Hey, I have some skills. Like I, you know what? I didn't know how to use Excel. I can use Excel. I didn't know how to email or use CRMs, but I know how to do it. I think I can get good at this. And I start getting ideas. You know, I want to create things. I want to build things. I want to do cool shit. And most of that time is after work or on a weekend. So come Wednesday, I'm like, oh, I have a great idea. I'm going to work on it this weekend. Come Saturday morning, I wake up at noon, hung over, and I don't do shit on Saturday. And then Sunday, I just have a little bit of like anxiety that work is already starting. So I'm putting my dreams on significant hold. And that is something where like I needed a kick in the ass. And I really started seeing that alcohol was not adding anything to my life at all. Like it was a complete hindrance, hindering, hindrance type substance in my life. That was the final straw. And I'm thankful like no one ever got hurt. I wrote a follow-up to last year. I drank tequila and released it last month, and it was called 794 Days of Water. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I realized no one may have gotten physically hurt. You know, no one, no blood, no broken bones, but there was emotional pain that I was responsible for. And just now, after two years of sobriety, I'm starting, that fog is starting to lift, and I'm able to see that. So in last year, tequila, when I wrote, we're fortunate no one got hurt. You know, the truth is people did get hurt. And it wasn't wrong of me to write that at the time. It's just, hey, that's where I was in this process of recovery. And then, yeah, I tried going sober. It's like once in September, made it three weeks, relapse. Once in October, made it four weeks, go back. Once in November, five weeks. Then once in December, I got six weeks. And it was like four times of trying to do it and being like, I'm done, I'm done. And comes back, I'm like, damn it. But then that December 28th morning, after a night of drinking, I was like, I'm done. Just done with it. And it's been over two years since. That's really amazing. Now, I know you had a lot of self-realization in your own epiphanies, but were there any other people in your life that came to you and said, hey, Richie, we've noticed what you're doing. Your, your drinking's a little out of control. Your behavior's not really you. Was there anyone, any family, friend, or even just an outside person that came to you and kind of nudged you a little bit, made you go within? Hmm. Indirectly, you know, I think there were moments when my mom was extremely embarrassed about how drunk I would be at a family function mm -hmm. or we're at a Cape house and the summer shared with all of our family. And it's like, and she was like, why are you chugging that mimosa? It's nine in the morning. Like, what are you doing? And, you know, she's in this hard spot where it's like, oh, I love my son. He looks really happy. Everyone seems to be smiling. But I just disagree a bit with what he's doing to himself. So it was never directly, hey, stop. But once I decided to do it, there were a lot of voices that kind of came out and they're like, hey, I think this is good for you. Like, I'm really happy for yeah. you that you've decided to go down this path. Yeah. So you could sense it. Yeah. Not yeah. yeah. It's amazing how that happens too. I mean, I, I've overcome some things in my life and during it, you don't realize it. But in hindsight, you sit back and you look, you go, oh. 
that moment or that person or that book or even that role model. For me, Rich is a big, Rich Roll is a big role model. I know he's a big role model for you and his story is powerful. And, mm-hmm. you know, I was going through some similar things. And after I read his book, Finding Ultra, I went out and bought a bike. I mean, it was over. Like my life is changing from this moment forward as a result of his stories. So, you know, it's interesting how it, they can just accumulate little signals, little senses, little moments in life to form ahead and go, you know what? That's it. That's it. So good on you. I'm really glad to hear that you came to that realization and you changed your life. And, and now you're doing meaningful work. And let's flip the script and let's get into some of that because cool. it's awesome stuff. So now you're sober, you're creative, you're waking up on Saturday and you're like, I've got stuff to do and I'm oh, ready yeah. to do it, right? You got a yeah. clear head, clear yeah. mind. Now, shortly after you went sober, correct me if I'm wrong on the dates, but you decided to take a bike ride, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I mean, a pretty big bike ride. You want great. me to set the table or you want to just dive right um, in? Because, <laughs> yeah. I, so I went sober December, late December 2017. Yeah. And during 2018, it was a process of leaving my job, going out and starting to work on the stuff I really wanted to work on, entering into a new romantic partnership with my current partner, and moving to California in the fall because, hey, I want a certain lifestyle every day. I don't want to have to compromise that. And I need to warm weather. I want it to be around people who are focused on wellness, who are getting outside to run, who are not stuck in a gym that were like self-motivating. I want to go on a bike ride. I want to be by the beach. I want to do this. And once I got to California, I, I had this, this like phrase that I just pieced together that now is kind of like a personal creed that is you know, one of the greatest personal tragedies is that of a dream deferred. And I didn't want to keep deferring dreams. I had an idea to bike across the country for about three years. And the first year, I didn't do it. The second year, I thought about doing it, didn't do it. And it's like, I was like, you know what? I'm going to do it this year. And quickly started piecing it together so that in July of 2019, I decided just to do it. So last summer, I... I rode my bike across the country, 3,904 miles for 65 days from Canton to Santa Monica Pier. I tell you what, anyone listening to this, go to Richie Crowley's YouTube and watch these short videos. It's quite entertaining. (laughs) And the music selection is great, by the way. If you find yourself (laughs) not bobbing your head, check your pulse. (laughs) My wife and I were watching it last night. We were just head bobbing on the couch watching it. We're like, oh man, we need more. (laughs) So, but let's talk about the ride and some of the moments. So you left Canton Mm -hmm. and you took the Midwest route, correct? You didn't go Southern. You went across the Rust Belt into the Midwest, right? Yeah. So the route was... It wasn't a direct straight line because part of this ride was I wanted to make sure that it was married to some sort of social impact. You know, you can ride a bike across your country. You can ride a bike across the country and also do some good with it. So I asked Vistro, which makes prepared plant-based meals that you can freeze. You know, you can go into the grocery aisle and where you would get the chicken nuggets or the fish sticks. You can get a Vistro and it's all plant-based. It's good ingredients. And what I realized was frozen food technology has advanced from the 1990s. And when I talked to Monica, she's like, yeah, like you can freeze stuff and it's good for weeks. 
So I asked them, I said, all right, will you guys do something for me? Will you make a menu of meals that I, rather than someone saying, hey, Richie, how can I support you on the ride? That I can say, I'm good. Don't worry about me. But if you want to make a difference and support this, go to the Wellness Rides website and donate some meals. Because every two weeks, I'm going to stop in a major city. And I selected organizations that are not only feeding the less fortunate, but truly empowering them with education, with programs to help lift them up. And it was important to find those organizations because I've been involved with initiatives that, this is the hard one, you know, I've been involved with initiatives that will provide meals and cook meals. And at the time, it felt incredible. But sometimes when I saw the same people coming back, I recognized a bit of a hole where I was like, damn, I'm not doing anything to help them tomorrow. I'm not doing anything to help them a week from now. The only thing I'm doing is helping when I come back with plantains, rice and beans and sweet potatoes. I'm feeding them just for today. What can I do different? And it's like, hey, education is a massive thing. If you can feed someone beans, rice, plantains and sweet potatoes and then give them a grocery list and say, listen, this costs $42 a week at this grocery store. Go down there and buy these ingredients and now cook these 10 recipes with these ingredients. That's empowerment. So selecting these organizations and saying, you guys are doing this, right? Like you're hosting cooking classes. You're going into schools and talking with kids. You're doing more than just providing meals. Providing meals is incredible. It's not an indictment on anyone who can only is at a capacity with doing that. But I knew I had a capacity to do more. I knew the people who were going to support this had a capacity to do more. So finding these organizations was, it was imperative to make sure that they were doing that. So the route then took me first from Boston to Brooklyn, then from Brooklyn to Cleveland, Ohio, then down to St. Louis, then up to Denver, then to Vegas, then to LA. So it's, it was pretty straight across, but I added about a thousand miles by going the extra direction. Like going from Brooklyn to St. Louis should just be a straight line. But when I decide to go through the Appalachians up to Ohio and then back down, (laughs) it adds about 400 miles. And that that repeats itself a couple of times. A mistake I made going through the Rockies, you know, just miles, miles started to add on. (laughs) Oh man. Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever blown three tires, dropped a chain and broken a cable during a ride? Dude. Oh my god. That literally all happened. That happened in Denver, right? That happened within two days of each other. Where I and I the day I was supposed to leave Denver, I got three flat tires on the way to the meal donation. So I woke up, I stayed at a friend's house for a couple days because I got to Denver early and we were gonna do the meal donation on the following Friday, but I told them I was like, Hey, I can't be here for a week. I gotta get out. So we decided to do it on a Tuesday morning. And on my way over, I popped two tires. This was on a four-mile bike ride. I popped two tires. So then I patched one up and got over there. Then after the donation, I went to a bike shop. And it's maybe noon. And the guy gets me some new tubes. He installs them for me. I was like, I just, can you just take care of this for me? I'm gonna go, I need to go get some food. There was a Chipotle next door. When I came back, he asked me where I was going. And I was like, I'm going to Santa Monica. And he's like, okay, cool. 
but where you wasn't don't... phased at all. It was <laughs> yeah. like Santa Monica. Yeah. <laughs> like you realize that's in <laughs> California, right? And he, he says, okay, so where are you going today? And I told him the town. He said, oh, okay, so you're going to go through the Rockies. And I said, yeah. And he's like, okay. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you're not going to get through the Rockies on this bike. I was like, what do you mean? And he's like, see how stretched your cable is? And he was like, look at, sorry, your chain. He's like, look at your chain stretching and look at your rear derailleur was doing it. He's like, we have to change that. I was like, oh, geez, what's it going to cost? He's like, oh, 150 bucks plus labor, but I'll do it for you. No labor. I was like, okay, cool. Let's do it. So I was like, okay, well, not a horrible day. Let's keep going. All right. And as I'm leaving, he's like, hey, do you have a bear bell? I was like, I, I'm not familiar with what part of the bike the bear bell is. I know handlebars. I know. Is that my tire? Or? <laughs> yeah. And he's like, no, a bear bell because there's bears in the Rockies. He's like, there's bears and rattlesnakes. And I was like, no, come on, really? And he's like, you should get a bear bell. And I was like, I'm not getting a bear bell. But I had that fear in my mind. So finally, I leave Denver and it's maybe like 1.32. And I'm like, okay, I'm going into the, I'm in the Rockies now. And I quickly climbed, I think, to like 9,000 feet. And I was like, okay, we're, we're in the Rockies now. And I'm going through and it's fun. And that night, I'm about 11 miles from where I wanted to finish that day. And all of a sudden, I can't shift. And I'm on just a side road in the Rockies along a river. It's beautiful, but there's not many cars. And I can't shift and I'm starting to go uphill. So I look at it. I call the person from Specialized who was loaning me the bike. And I was like, hey, man, any suggestions? So we FaceTime and he's like, okay, pull this cable out a little. He's like, keep pulling it. And I pull it all the way out. He's like, okay, good, good. Yeah. So your bike's broken, but now at least we know what's wrong. I was like, damn. Not So three flat tires, a rear derailleur, and the rear shifting cable snaps. So I get a motel that night because there's a bike shop in that town. The next morning I go to the bike shop, a person walking by tells me, oh, that shop's been closed for four months. But there's a shop 12 miles into the town I was going to stay in the night before. So I finagle my gear to be on like an easy pedal. And I go 12 miles on a single, like a fixie single speed bike, get to this next bike shop. And the sign says open, amazing. There's kayaks outside, bikes outside, amazing. Doors locked. Sign on the door says, call John. So I call John. He's like, oh, I'm in Denver. I can be back there at like 4 or 5 p.m. today. I was like, that's not going to work. So I go up to the highway and I hitchhike 25 miles to a town, Dillon, Frisco, or like two towns next to each other. $5 fix. The guy just puts it in. But then I have to hitchhike back to that bike shop that was closed because there was no part of this ride, no forward progression that I was going to allow myself not to bike. So I didn't actually start that day until like two or three that night. And then actually it probably started around noon. And then this day was a ridiculous day because everyone's telling me that Vail Pass, Vail Pass, Vail Pass is the big climb. And they say that because they don't know about the Western Continental Divide because the Western Continental Divide is a side road and they just go through a tunnel that bikes are not allowed through. So I was riding on the highway and then I had to exit the highway and I had to go up this pass that took me about an hour and a half and just had me crying. But it was the highest point. It was 11,990 feet. And then I had like 18 miles of downhill, got to a Whole Foods, had a matcha latte 
and then decided to get to Vail. So I went up Vail Pass that day. And it was on Strava, that was a ridiculous day. It was like an 100-mile day, probably like 12,000 feet of climbing or something. But yeah, dude, to answer your question, yes, in 36 hours, I had all those flats. And that was only when the flats started. You know, after that day is when I really started getting flats through the Rockies, through Utah, through Nevada, and through California. Um, They just have these thorns called goat head thorns that you Mm -hmm. can't see, but damn it, they can take out a bike. Man, I'm, I'm surprised you didn't go tubeless. Did you I think know, about that? I didn't know what tubeless was until probably so you, a day I got six flats in Utah and someone DM'd me on Instagram like, hey, have you ever thought about these tires? I was like, <laughs> oh, thanks, man. I could have been helpful 55 days ago when I said I'm riding across the country. Yeah, no one said, hey, man, you might want to try tubeless if you, it'll, it'll self-patch. Yeah, <laughs> I was underprepared. But it worked out. It's like Specialized has these like cool patch boy things that make it easy to patch. Mm-hmm. I learned how to change a tire pretty quickly. And I learned how to hitchhike efficiently. You know, I learned, I, what I would do is I'd flip my bike upside down and I'd put a water bottle on the ground and put my helmet on the ground all within 20 feet. So it looked like I crashed and cars just pull right over. Like, are you okay? I was like, yeah, yeah I'm fine. I'm fine. But I need a ride. <laughs> it's a good tactic. I thought so. It works better than the I thumb. Yeah, the thumb. <laughs> people are just like, nope. See a biker. Yeah, Charles Manson. He's got a beard. You see that? Yeah. yeah. Just yeah by this land, point, you have a full beard. Down. Yeah, hair, beard, dirt <laughs> so, on grease, probably on my face. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Road grime. Totally. So, had you had any other experience riding? Were you a cyclist before this, or was this just like, hey, I'm taking this on because it's something I want to do? Or were you pretty much into the biking scene anyhow? I wasn't into it. I had a bike, though I've done a charity 100 mile ride. Like, I've done a century, and I would go on 20 mile training rides during hockey on off days just to keep the body going because it's an easy machine to use. Mm-hmm. But no, this ride really came from. Hey, it's so it started, I wrote a note to myself probably in 2016 and it was a blue sticky note and I have it still. And it says, ask Rich, talking about Rich Roll, if I bike across the country, will he have breakfast with me? And I was like, this is so cool. Like I'm going to be texting him or like emailing him every day being like, Hey, 50 days out. 49 days out until one what do you day, want for breakfast Rich? yeah until one day he's like okay okay i'll yes we can have breakfast you rode across <laughs> the country we can have breakfast but on top of that you know i wanted to do it i had heard of people walking the camino de santiago in spain now i've heard of the pacific trail heard of the appalachian trail jedediah jenkins riding his bike north to south mike posner Started his walk a couple months before me. I was like, okay, I have to do it now. So it was, it was rooted in personal pilgrimage. 100% it was personal pilgrimage. It was, what will I find out about myself? I want to do this. This is going to be a milestone moment of life. On top of that, it was, let's do good, do good while doing good. Mm -hmm. And I found myself having a lot more convictions about how accessible wellness is. And this comes from you know, drinking the Kool-Aid of the blue zones and seeing how people live. They don't have massive wealth. They don't hoard wealth. They grow all their food. They move naturally. They don't have gym memberships. They sleep. They have friendship. 
everything they do is free. Yet in American culture, it's the $300 Equinox membership. It's the countless meditation books and apps, all of these, hey, no shame on it. But when I was getting very bold in my statements being like, no, you don't need any of that shit. You don't need any of this to be well. And looking at people who aren't well and the rates of obesity, the rates of diabetes, the rates that aside from alcohol and tobacco, the leading cause of preventable death in the United States is lifestyle and diet. Mm -hmm. We can fix all that shit. So it's easy for me to say that with my education. I recognize the privilege I have. You know, I'm, I'm a white male in America. My whole life, things have worked for someone like me. I got to go to an Ivy League school to have that education. I've lived in metropolitan cities. I've traveled the world. I've seen all of this. So it's obvious to me, but man, I don't know what it's like in the middle of Kansas. I don't know what it's like in Utah. I don't know what it's like in Indiana. What's so obvious to me, why is it not obvious to someone else? So I wanted to discover that. And you know, it made a lot of sense going through you know, Kansas or Missouri And the only thing more popular than a subway is a liquor store that every intersection you come to, and they're 20, 30 miles apart, it's a gas station, a subway, and either an Arby's or McDonald's or a Burger King. Man, health is not accessible there. It is not. How many times a week are you going to drive an hour each way just to get fresh produce? Right. You know? So that, I needed to see that just to to step off my high horse a little bit, to be, to have a bit more compassion, be like, dude, all right, good for you, Richie, you're doing it, but what are you going to do for the millions of other people that don't have this education, that don't have this access? Are you going to be part of the solution? So yeah. uh, seeing it at 14 miles an hour was, was going to be a better way to do it. And I wasn't going to run across the country. <laughs> you definitely see a lot more on a bikes. And that's really amazing. It was purpose-driven. You had a mission in mind, not only for yourself, but for the greater good of mankind. And you had some, I'm sure, several, if not dozens of aha moments of realization. And as you just touched on in the middle of America, food deserts. I mean, where people rely on the gas station for the food for the week. And it's not that they don't want the good, clean, healthy food. They do. They just don't have access to it. And that's tragic. And I'm really glad that you made a point to bring awareness to that and do good. And I'm sure that the work that you did during your ride with these organizations that you stopped and met with is still putting that work out there. So it's something that's self-perpetuating. It didn't just end when you left town. Totally. They definitely are. And that's, I won't say I've struggled with it, but there's definitely a part of me that I want to do so many different things. And like, I want to care about so much stuff, but I also know I have to pick and choose my battles. I know that it's likely I would exhaust myself saying, listen, I care about healthcare. I care about food accessibility. I care about climate disruption. I care about our oceans. I care about equity. I care about LGBTQ. I care about all this. So I'm going to go in all these different directions and then nothing gets done. So this was a step. I'll return to it in some capacity, but I've also found the people who are doing it at a higher level than me. And hey, let's support them. Let me push attention and say, check out the Blue Zones. Go read their books. Go hear what they're doing. Listen to Rich's podcast. These people are decades deeper into this than me and be that vehicle that introduces them to it. But those organizations, yeah, they're not going anywhere. Like they're doing this. And 
who knows? Who knows if the, the next program, the next initiative may return to them. It may be totally different. But I hesitate to use the word like inspiration, but if it can become a catalyst for yeah. someone to change their life or for someone to say, hey, I'm going to do a bit of service with something this weekend. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't have to be right away. I mean, someone might read your story, learn about you, and it just sits with them and it resonates. And it could be next week. It could be five years from now. Like, man, I remember that Richie Crowley guy. Yeah. And then bang, your work is born again. Yeah. So, and that's amazing. By the way, did um, did you ever have breakfast with Rich? I, so fortunately, I have had dinner with him. Have you really? Yeah. I was able to, so my partner, she's a musician and her and Julie became friends through Julie's music. And then we were able to have dinner with them being in like the LA scene and then was able to hang out with them again at a mind body green event in Arizona over the summer. Just kind of talk Vikings, talk about cliff bars and, uh, and all that. But yeah, dude, he's that guy. He's, he's, he's the genuine article, isn't he? Yeah, man. He's such a role model. He, yeah, he really is. That's amazing. That's, you know, I put out a tweet, I think it was either yesterday or today that, you know, manifesting your dreams and my dream would be to have rich roll on my podcast. So you never know. It's out in the universe right now. The ripple is there. Yeah, it is. It totally is. <laughs> you never know. So let's, we got to land this thing here in a little bit, but let's talk a little bit about the meditation and the plant-based food that you eat and how that really evolved because you weren't always plant-based and it's rather new for you, isn't it? Within the last couple of years, right? Yeah. Yeah. Last couple of years. I, before my last season, so that would have been the summer of 2015, mm-hmm. I, the last six years of my career, I just played with herniated discs, reoccurring separated shoulders, and I kept on aggravating my herniated discs by lifting weights. Like I'd just be like, oh, I'm feeling good. I'm going to squat more. Boom, there it goes. It's out. Yeah. And like doing pushing sleds with weights on them. So I decided to spend a summer living on the beach, just right on the house, right on the beach, doing beach workouts, just push-ups, burpees, squat jumps, sprints every day, biking. And that's when a friend of mine, Pat McCauley, who's a social impact vegan entrepreneur up in Boston, introduced me to Rich's podcast. And on Rich's podcast, I quickly found Dan Buettner's episode and start reading about the Blue Zones. And I was like, hey, I'm going to try this out. And the results were immediate. And that whole season, I kept as tightly as I could in Italy to a plant-based diet. And it was rooted in fruit bowls for breakfast, Jesse Itzler style, where it's just put a bunch of berries and put some nuts on and just eat. Like Itzler, I think, was saying at that point, he's like, I only eat fruit until noon. So I was doing that. And then just you know, steaming or boiling vegetables or sauteing vegetables with rice for dinner and having a bunch of beans with it and soups. And I felt incredible. So. After that season, when I started traveling, I let loose a little bit and I stayed away from it. And about a year later, I really returned to it. So not until well into 2016 is when I returned to it. And that's not to say I haven't had moments where I've been at a dinner and had an oyster or you know had a piece of salmon or had a slice of pizza that had mozzarella cheese on it because I'm in Siena, Italy. Like it's happened. But now, yeah, the grocery list and I haven't veered off from it for maybe a year, a little bit more now, is, man, it's probably only like 35 ingredients. You know, it's, it's dates, it's berries, it's bananas, it's papaya, it's sweet potato, it's cannellini, black bean, and garbanzo bean, 
it's oatmeal, it's rice, it's quinoa, it's lentil, lentil dal dishes. Oh. And, and then just, you know, some other veggies on it, you know, cauliflowers, cruciferous with cabbage. That's what it is. And it's, they all add to each other too. Like I made a soup last night and I was like, oh, I'm going to put some rosemary in this. And I was like, this is the best thing I've ever made. This is <laughs> the best dish I've ever made. Um, so it, it's nice to know that all the ingredients are safe and health promoting. Yeah. I'm really glad to hear you say that you've, you know, you have the slice of pizza or you've had the piece of salmon because a lot of people, when they think plant-based or vegan, they're like, oh, I have to be perfect or I can't do this. And that's not the case at all. None of us are perfect. Mm -hmm. And if you think, if people out there think that a hundred percent of the time that I eat that way or, or you eat that way, as you just mentioned, it's just false. It's sometimes it's impossible, but you can't hold yourself to that standard and set yourself up for that type of failure. And then you just slip. Mm-hmm. It's okay. We're all human. We're not going to be perfect. But if you're doing it and you feel the results, like you just mentioned, and, and I've experienced, just keep at it. That's the main thing. Just keep at it. What's cool and to piggyback that is, for me, there was that, hey, be kind to yourself. You know, mm-hmm. if you're craving it, have it. But now, it's, I totally feel every single effect. And this comes right. up, I got a, like a, a simmering sauce from a bazaar that's on Okeechobee Road. It's a main road down here in West Palm. And I, what I'll do with it is I'll, like, I'll mix chickpeas with it and some cayenne pepper and cumin, and then I'll put them in to bake. And I had them, and I didn't feel great. I was like, I don't, hmm, something's off a little bit. I checked the label, and it was like, contains milk. And I was like, mm. this makes sense. Like I, I was like, I totally understand why I feel like shit right now. Mm-hmm. And that, once you get to that point, there's a lot more like conviction. You're like, okay, hey, not only do I feel great, not only am I helping the environment, not only am I compassionate to animals, but I, don't, I just don't want to feel bad anymore. Like there's yeah. so many different boxes you can be checking. It's amazing. I mean, you bring up a really valid point that when you remove all the stuff that isn't good for your body and then you reintroduce it, you notice it. But when you're in it and you're just eating that stuff on the daily, it's bliss almost. You don't realize that you're just going through life. And then, like you said, you, you reintroduce just a small amount of it. You're like, wow, what is pumping through my blood right now? I can feel this literally in my body. So yeah, and the palate changes. I mean, that's a big thing. People, when they first try it, like, oh, it doesn't taste real great. You got to give it a couple of weeks. Let your yeah. palate readjust to that not being overwhelmed with fat, sugar, and salt. <laughs> You know, so that's really good stuff, Richie. I, I'm really glad to hear that you're doing that and you're out there doing purposeful work. We're going to land this thing down here. It's been really, really fun talking with you. Before we do so, though, tell the people what's next on the horizon for you and your work. This is the time where you give me the shameless plugs and I'll make sure I include all the links, but go ahead and drop a little bit of stuff for us if you don't mind. So with all the creative projects that I was doing, I, I realized I kept on like, every month introducing a new thing to friends. They're like, Where, like what are you doing now, Richie? So in the fall after the ride, I packaged everything up under one roof and opened Ricky Ricky, which is a creative project management company. And it's, I say creative project management because it has like one side, which is like idea generation. It's like, hey, let's do some really cool shit together. No, I don't care about just what you're supposed to do in your content calendar. No, like, Let's do something that doesn't make any sense for your brand or your business. But you know what? It's a human thing. And people are going to really love that and dig with it. So Ricky Ricky is where most of my time is. And it's one of 
the brands working with is like, I want to be deeper in the non-alcoholic beverage space. I just think it's a smart move, but like athletic brewing, one of the the best non-alcoholic beers out there doing, we were supposed to be hosting a house down at South by was going to sit on a panel there. So I'm definitely doing a lot of work with them, which is cool. But personally, you know, there's the book, the shopping around a book proposal for a book right now called 27 sober and living in my parents' basement. And you open up and usually where it's like the book jacket about the author, it just says, well, fuck. And I just think that right there makes it a readable book. That sets the tone. Yeah. (laughs) But there's two other ones. There's, I want to host a podcast and I've mapped out seven seasons of it. I've kind of looked at the model that Netflix shows have to make it like themed. So 10 episodes per season and it's all these really unique type topics, but like we just find who are the leaders there and like make it this bingeable type thing. So I'm still exploring that. And I think the most fun one is I just, it's an idea that if I speak it into existence right now that it, it'll have to happen, but it's... Put it out there, man. So it's, it's, based, it's called a year of service and it's 12 months across maybe 12 different countries or four different continents, but I pick a social issue and every month just dedicate myself completely to it. And it's not for compensation. It's the rules are actually, I'm not allowed to get paid for any of it, but it's leading with service because there are several things that before service we need. We need to make sure we have a roof over our head. We need to make sure we have food and we probably want to have a little bit of financial security and then come service. But it would be an experiment on what if we just said, screw it, service first. Hey, and I'm going to dedicate myself completely to this. So I have that deck built. I have the ideas. And it's going back between, hey, do I just want to like make a documentary with it? Do I want to do it? So every month there's like a culminating event that if anyone wants to join, we could do that. So maybe it's reforestation projects with One Tree Planted. And we say, hey, we're actually going to do a planting in Virginia. Anyone who wants to come this weekend, come on down. So who knows what it will look like, but I think it'd be pretty cool. I love that. A year of service. Man, now that's something I could subscribe to and get involved with. That's, that's amazing. I can't wait to see that play out. Yeah, it'll be cool. You know, it's motivation comes from like kind of a dark place. And on a day like today where it's, you know, mourning the loss of my grandfather, it, exposed the fragility of life. Mm -hmm. I'm not deep, I'm spiritual, but I'm not deeply religious. And I don't have personal confirmations about reincarnations, about heavens, about what comes at the moment of death. So there's definitely that part of me that's like, shit, hey, if... 95 years old is what science is estimating is like human existence potential. That's 95 is a great human body. And I'm 28. All right. I got 70 something years and that's it. Get it in. Like I got 70 years. Like I don't, I don't care about making an app that helps me send money to my friends. I don't care about calling up a car to come pick me up. I don't care about this new clothing. I don't care about this new smart teapot that goes on when my alarm wakes up every morning. Like, yeah, those are great. They're luxuries. I support them. I think they're cool. But like, where do I want to invest my time? It's like, 
I just want to create ideas and fulfill them and trust that everything will work out. And when I say everything will work out, understand that I don't need much. And it's like, I just want a place to sleep and a place to eat. That's really what matters. I get lost sometimes in it thinking I got to earn money and do all this. But yeah, man, I'm not even a year away from the bike ride. And it's, I'm just like craving to be like, God, just do something probably foolish, but trust it'll work out again. (laughs) I love it, man. I love it. Well, I tell you what, Richie, I'm unsure about what is afterlife as well, but I know this, if there is a heaven afterlife that we all go to, you're on the fast track, my friend. <laughs> you're doing things. They're going to make sure that you're front of the line. You got the speed pass. Let them on through. <laughs> I love it, man. I've, I've really enjoyed talking with you. I've really enjoyed learning more about who you really are and what makes you tick. You're a fascinating person. You're doing a lot of really great work to serve humanity. And I commend you for that. And I thank you for that. And if there's anything I can do to help support anything you're doing, hey, you have a direct line to me now and let's stay in touch and let's make something happen. Hell yeah, I'm on board. All right, brother. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. All right, everybody, that was Richie Crowley. Please check my show notes to learn more about his work, how you can get involved with his work, and I highly recommend going to the YouTube channel and watching some of those series about his bike ride. It's, it's really entertaining stuff. Until next time, peace, love, and plants. Amazing, right? What Richie has done with his life thus far, it's incredible. One could have easily felt satisfied with playing any professional sport, let alone winning championships. But that didn't define Richie. That was just the beginning for him. To then confront personal demons and surmount them to then follow that painful chapter up by riding a bicycle across the United States, that's just unbelievable. And as we just heard, Richie is steadfast on his mission-driven life. And I have zero doubts that he's going to continue to do impactful things that will have a positive effect. I really hope you enjoyed meeting Richie. To learn more about him and his work, please be sure to check out my show notes. That is all for this week. Until next time, peace, love, and plants.